Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Wealth Builders, presented by State & Walsh. In this week's episode, we have a very special guest, Kevin Flanagan, Head of Fixed Income Strategy at Wisdom Tree Asset Management. Kevin comes to us with a wealth of experience in all things fixed income. In today's episode, we discuss topics like rising interest rate environment, inflation, as well as strategies investors can use in the fixed income portion of their portfolios moving forward. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. This is Wealth Builders, presented by State & Walsh, a show designed to pull back the curtain of the financial industry and bring true transparency to the forefront of conversation. On the show, we cover topics like financial education, current events, and interview business leaders and industry experts with the ultimate goal of helping listeners discover their own path to financial independence. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Wealth Builders. And this week, we have a very special guest, Kevin Flanagan, who is the head of fixed income strategy at Wisdom Tree Asset Management, also with Brandon Liebman, who's the director at Wisdom Tree. So super, super excited this week. Um, Brian, I know you are as well. We're talking all things fixed income. Big hot topic right now. So we're super excited to have Kevin and Brandon on the show. Um, make sure also to listen to Kevin's podcast. It's a great listen um, called Basis Point. So definitely go out there, listen to him. But Brandon, I'll turn it over to you. Give us a little more background. I know we've had you on the show before. Give us a little more background on Wisdom Tree, who you all are, and just kind of kick off the episode that way. Absolutely. Thank you, Devin. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Brandon Lieben, the director from Wisdom Tree Asset Management. Wisdom Tree Asset Management is an asset manager specializing in exchange-traded funds, ETFs, with over 70 billion assets under management across the globe. And as Devin mentioned today, we have Kevin Flanagan, one of our top resources, our head of fixed income strategy, one of our leading voices in the fixed income space, part of our model portfolio investment committee. He's been at Wisdom Tree for well over six years. And prior to that, was a managing director at Morgan Stanley for 20 plus years. So a wealth of experience. And as Devin, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of things going on in the fixed income landscape today. So it's great to have Kevin on the line and I'll turn it back over to the team. Awesome. So Ryan, um, how would you kick us off, Ryan, get um, started about talking about fixed income today and hear more a little about Kevin? Yeah. So thank you, everyone, for being on. I think as far as fixed income is concerned, I'll just kick it off with you, Kevin. Just give us a little bit of an introduction for the layperson out there. Fixed income is a term that gets thrown a lot around a lot. And most people, when they think fixed income, they think bonds. But just give us a, a rundown. What exactly does fixed income mean to the average everyday investor? Well, I think for most people, when they're, they're looking at either headlines or watching TV or whether it's on the internet or, or whatever, and they're hearing stories or headlines of fixed income, it's traditionally what is known as the money in bond markets, right? So what we're talking about are debt instruments for a variety of different institutions. It could be the US government. It could be government agencies like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. It could be collateralized, what we call debt instruments. In other words, they may be backed by a mortgage or some other type of loan agreement. And also corporations where you have investment grade companies and high yield. High yield, I guess in some people's parlay, maybe they'd be more familiar with the term junk. And there's also foreign debt markets as well, very similar to here in the US where you have sovereign debt, which would be like treasuries in another country, as well as corporate debt as well. So it's a global market. 
And it's not just maturity, say, 10 years or 30 years. It runs the gamut. And that's why I, I kind of lump together money and bond markets when you talk about fixed income, because we could talk about maturities as close to a one week, maybe in nature, all the way out to maybe 50 years in nature. So it's very broad, very encompassing, and includes a, a whole host of different what we would call issuers who are looking to borrow money, have investors help pay for that, and then providing interest rates as a result or interest income along the life of the debt instrument. Okay, great. Thank you for that. So generally speaking, I think most people believe that fixed income in some way is a little bit of a we'll call it a safe haven or something that's more stable in an investment portfolio. But this year seems to be an exception to that, especially in the the first six months of 2022. So give us a little insight. Why is that? What happened? And why do we see fixed income as an asset class actually following suit to some degree that the volatility of the stock market? So Ryan, you really want to hit me where it hurts, don't you? (laughs) Sorry. Um, I have to to ask. (laughs) You're right. I mean, all kidding aside, traditionally, right, fixed income in general, and I would refer to it as more investment grade fixed income, right? Like before, that doesn't include, say, junk or emerging markets, that type of a thing. So talking about it from that vantage point. So obviously, the Fed has played a big role in what we're seeing so far this year. Last year, we saw interest rates rise which is kind of the bane of the treasury market existence, right? Or fixed income in general. Rising rates means lower principal and vice versa. So last year, the premise for rates rising was not all across those different maturities I mentioned before. It was more intermediate or long-dated maturity, say seven years, 10 years, 30 years. And that was due to the run-up that we saw in inflation. This year, it's been across the board. And when I say across the board, not just in the maturity spectrum, but also with respect to sovereign debt, credit markets, as I mentioned before, pretty much all along. And that's due primarily to the Fed, the prospect that the Fed was going to begin to reverse the unprecedented easing of monetary policy due to the COVID and COVID-related lockdowns. So that includes raising rates. I know people have talked about it. You probably don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but quantitative ease. I'm sure people, if they turned on CNBC, they've heard the term QE. Well, they're reversing all of that now. And there's a lot of uncertainty as how aggressive the Fed's going to be in that process. And it's created an environment where interest rates were so low, it's almost as if the only place they had to go was up. And that's what we're finding out this year. And unfortunately, this is going to be the landscape for at least the remainder of 2022, if not into 2023 as well, because the Fed's just getting started. What's interesting is that you know there's been so much publicity about the Fed raising rates. They've only raised rates three times this year. So they still have some catching up to do. And in that regard, we could continue to see the bond market facing challenges in the months, if not quarters ahead. That's an interesting point. You bring up a few other things as far as being in a relatively low interest rate environment for an extended period of time. So 
With the Fed raising interest rates, one of the things we see in, in our practice, especially when we talk to retirees, is being conservative and still generating yield and interest and kind of earnings on our money in a safe and secure way. It's been relatively challenging with a low interest rate environment with bonds. You talk a little bit about the relationship between interest rates and inflation as well. So give us some context there, you know, as rates go up to combat inflation, like really, what does that mean in the context of like, as an investor or someone just looking at what's my money going to be doing for me in the market? You know, how do the two go hand in hand and, and what is the direct effect of one on the other? Originally, right. I mean, and, and this is not to be overly critical of the Fed chairman. A lot of other market observers felt that as way that they were looking as the increase in inflation last year, that the T word, right? Transitory. In other words, it was a temporary development, not permanent, something that would reverse course and essentially revert back to where we were before. But we found out for a variety of different factors that that was not the case. And what inflation tends to do, if you have a fixed income instrument, so just for argument's sake, kind of going back to bonds 101, if you're invested in a bond and it's providing you interest income, say, twice a year based on the coupon, right, of what it may be, 3%, 4% coupon. Unfortunately, it was more like 1% to 2% a year or so ago. And since that's fixed income, right? It's not being adjusted for anything. As inflation comes into the mix, that means that whatever that income you're getting, your purchasing power goes down. You're not able to buy the same, say, amount or degree or magnitude of goods and services that you had prior to inflation. So that's why that's really the enemy of the bond market. And what the Fed wants to do is combat that because it can also have other unwanted or unintended consequences on the inflation side as well. So that's the primary reason why when you're a bond investor, you don't like inflation because it's going to eat away at that fixed income you're getting from that debt instrument. Got it. That's great. And it's interesting because it, it does create a little bit of a, a challenge for investors that they see rising interest rates could be seen as a good thing. But then again, when you have inflation numbers that are north of 8%, a 4% interest rate doesn't seem so attractive anymore. So with some of the increases in rates, one thing, another, I guess, hot topic or jargon that gets thrown around when we turn on channels like CNBC, for example, they talk about things like inverted yield curves. Could you talk a little bit about that? What exactly does that mean? What effect does that have? It seems to always have a negative connotation with it, especially in regards to equity markets as well. But could you talk a little bit about that concept and what exactly that means for those that are- Yeah. So, right. The term inverted to me, right? Top Gun Maverick. It's the movie, right? Right now that's, that's in the box office. If you go back to the original, right? I mean, I remember the question- they were asking, well, how could you see the Russian pilot or whatever? And he said, because we were inverted. inverted. <laughs> right. And what essentially, if you can try to conceptualize that, is it's kind of like upside down. So in other words, a traditional yield curve, when we say it's positive, that means the difference in interest rates, say between a 30-year bond and let's call it a three-month T-bill, will be positive that you would expect since I am lending you money, essentially, for the next 30 years, 
I want a higher interest rate because there's risk involved over, say, a 30-year period. Whereas if you're invested in, say, a three-month security, there's far less uncertainty because technically you'll be getting your money back in three months, not 30 years. So you don't ask for the same kind of, let's call it, interest rate protection. So what happens when the yield curve inverts, it's completely the opposite, right? It's upside down, just like Maverick, that what you're looking at essentially are interest rates in that three-month area, two-year area are actually higher than where they are in a 10-year or 30-year type of maturity. And one of the key reasons behind that over the course of history has been due to Fed policy, that the Federal Reserve, when they raise interest rates, the more clear or direct impact that they have on the bond market is in those shorter dated maturities, because what the Fed is doing, they're raising the cost of overnight money. That's the federal funds rate. So when you turn on Yahoo Finance, when you turn on CNBC and they say the Fed raised rates three quarters of a point, that means they increased their federal funds rate by that much. And that is the cost of overnight money, overnight lending. So as you move further out in maturity, you have less of a direct relationship to overnight money. So that's why you have these shorter dated maturities will adjust higher because of that, because they're tying in to what the Fed is more or less directly doing. Whereas something that's 10 or 30 years out, they may be saying, hey, if the Fed raises rates too much here, maybe they slow the economy. And now the debate is maybe they push us into a recession, which would mean the interest rates come down. So what happens is you have this positive shaping slope of, say, the yield curve we were talking about that starts to get adjusted. So just try to picture something at the bottom, something at the top, and that something at the bottom starts to move up, that something at the top starts to move down. And at some point, they could become equal. At some point, they become that inverted, that negative spread relationship where interest rates in shorter data maturities are actually higher than for longer dated maturities. Excellent visual as well. I think a lot of people, for those that have seen the original Top Gun, know what you're talking about. And that, like you said, the, <laughs> I, the I new, need to see the new one. Now, the new, right, yeah, yeah, now, yeah. now I'm, I'm more motivated than ever. So with that rising rate environment that we're kind of living in right now, if that continues, which it seems like it will, based on what the Fed has said, their policy will be through the end of the year. Do we see that as a good or a bad thing for fixed income markets? That is a great question. So it really, it varies on what your risks parameters are, what your income needs are. What are you looking to get out of your fixed income portfolio? So if you were just to say for argument's sake, we saw this in the 2018, last time the Fed was raising rates. I think it, it occurred in early 2019. The Treasury issues floating rate notes, two-year floating rate notes, okay? At one point, they were, and they're reset every week with the three-month T-bill auction. So that's what they float off of, right? People hear about floating rate debt as a means of rate hedging to help insulate their bond portfolio. Because as I said before, if you're a fixed coupon, you're kind of left hanging out there. If you have a floating rate instrument, that helps hopefully to protect some of the principal that you've invested in fixed income. So for a treasury floating rate note, 
that is adjusted every week at one point was the highest yielding treasury security. So this goes back, Ryan, to your question about inverted yield curves versus, say, a 30-year bond. So think about that. Something that is adjusted every week was actually higher in yield or a rate than what we saw for a 30-year maturity. So for that period in time, investors would say, hey, geez, why not capture that coupon, that interest income? And I only have something that is far, far less sensitive to changes in rates on principle, something known as duration. Believe me, I won't go down that rabbit hole. And then you have, or would you rather have a rate equal to or less than that and you're holding on to this for 30 years. So oftentimes, you know, investors would say, hey, I'd rather have that treasury floating rate note. That makes more sense to me. But then you get to the point where, let's just say for argument's sake, this isn't a call, but let's say we do go into a recession and the Fed then has to reverse course, say in 2024, and start lowering rates. Then you may want to be further out on that yield curve. Maybe you want to be in a 10-year or a 30-year because as interest rates fall, that price sensitivity is more going to occur in those longer dated maturities. So you could actually think of it as as the stock market. You could actually see the price of the bonds. Remember, there's that inverted, there's that term again, relationship between rates and principal, right? Rates go up, price goes down. Rates go down, prices go up. So you may be in a position in your bond portfolio at that point. It's like, you know something, maybe I'd like to see the price of my bonds go up. So what we tend to do is talk about a barbell strategy where you kind of marry the two concepts together. So it's a time-tested approach where think of a barbell, whatever the weightlifter is lifting. You have the barbell and on either end, you have two weights. Just say for argument's sakes, one of them is that treasury floating rate and another one say is a 10-year security on the other. And you can toggle the weights back and forth. That way, you're really not making a prediction on where you think rates are going. It's more of a strategic type of allocation, which I, you know, investors tend to be looking at in their model portfolios. You can always make tactical adjustments based upon current situations, which lends the flexibility of the barbell approach is something that is, is certainly investors would welcome. So that would be, I, I think, when you're looking at fixed income investing, something that we talk about, something that we emphasize, rather than saying, hey, I think rates are going to go up. I'm just going to be in that short maturity. I think rates are coming down. I'd rather be way out on the yield curve to try to get price appreciation. We say complement the two, marry the concepts and and hopefully it provides less headaches when you look at your monthly statement. That's great. And I think ultimately a different form of diversification. It's funny, while you were talking through that, I was thinking in my head, it sounds like this bond market or fixed income market specifically has become in this environment more of a strategic, dynamic, tactical, whatever term you kind of want to throw at that. But as we all, I think, understand and are aware of, the average everyday investor and most of the people we're crossing paths with just don't, most don't have the bandwidth to do that. And most wouldn't want to. So that's an interesting strategy though. The barbell strategy, it, it sounds to me like you're kind of, you're taking a little piece from both sides. You're kind of standing on both sides of the fence at the same time. And that way you don't have to make a prediction. You can kind of just let it all play out. And either way, you're going to have some form of protection in both scenarios. So that's very interesting. 
So outside of that strategy, I guess, where do investors go in a high inflation environment? Where do they go to find more yield or more income from their portfolios based on on what what you're seeing today with the fixed income landscape? That is a great question because we are watching the fixed income bond market landscape changing right before our eyes. I mean, we were just talking to the point a couple of minutes ago of historically low interest rates, right? It it seems pretty much since the financial crisis and the Great Recession, that has been the challenge for, for bond market investors. Where do I find income in the bond market? It's interesting, if you go back to June of 2007, um, can't believe that's 15 years ago now. And we were. this was before the financial crisis really began to hit in terms of the headlines in the markets. A 10-year treasury note was yielding around five and a quarter, just to provide some perspective. So we got down to, during COVID, I think in August of 2020, we got down to one half of 1%. So 0.50. So almost five percentage points below where we were in, in June of 2007, just to provide some perspective. But now you're seeing that 10-year treasury note the other day, or I should say about a week ago, was flirting with 3.5%. So we're making up for lost ground. And when you look at I was talking before about right other aspects to the fixed income or the bond market, investment-grade corporate bonds, high-yield corporate bonds. You're starting to see interest rate levels now that are not quite where they were in 2007, but they're certainly above where they have been. And just for instance, if you look at an investment-grade index, U.S. investment-grade corporate bonds, as of this past Friday, which would be June 24th, the index was showing a yield of about four and three quarters percent. High yield was getting close to eight and a half percent. These are numbers that are more, let's call it, quote unquote, traditional in nature. And, you know, it gets back to the point, right? I I guess me, unfortunately, being a a Ranger fan and even more unfortunate for Brandon being a New York Islander fan. But, you know, (laughs) hockey just ending with the Colorado Avalanche. Wayne Gretzky was always skate to where the puck is going. And that's why I think your question is right on the money, because it's like, okay, where is the puck going? And if rates are going to continue to move higher here, you may find fixed income reverting back to the more traditional role it had been used in the past as, quote unquote, fixed income, right? That is not equity type related like you would see in the stock market. So I think it's going to be, to me, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, not just later this year, but what if we do avoid a recession? And the Fed is not inclined to have to lower rates. It will be fascinating for, for me to see how investors look at some of these yields in the market. You know, the same holds for municipal bonds as well, right? I mean, you know, there's a, so many different avenues out there that you could be looking at, but yield levels, in other words, rates, what we're seeing now, the search may not have to be as difficult as it had been over the last, say, five, 10 years. Sure. No, that's great. And I think an important point that you made there is that that we always, I think, emphasize is maintaining perspective. One thing that we see a lot is that investors, they tend to have short memories. They don't remember a time where you referenced the 10-year yield back in 2007 and 
a lot of people, their new barometer for where rates are, or what rate environment we're in is, is mortgages. And a lot of people have, have gotten some pretty cheap money over the past five, six, seven years. And ultimately, we're kind of going back to a place that, as you said, is a little more normal or traditional. So we are also interested to see kind of how that plays out. I know that having an interest rate on your mortgage, for example, that's 5% seemed like a complete stretch and ridiculous. Even seven, eight months ago, a lot of people were living in the, the threes and, and high twos. So it's definitely important to maintain that perspective and understand like where we fall on the historical yield curve, if you want to say that. And I think that all makes perfect sense and, and sounds great. So Devin, I know you had a question about fixed income outside the United States. So yes. I'll let you yeah. So I just like for diversifying inside your bond portfolio and fixed income portfolios, you know, talking about emerging market bonds, international bonds, whether it's an ETF or just your thoughts on investing in fixed income outside of the US. It gets back to what I was saying before in terms of what is the investor's parameters? What are they looking to achieve in the bond part of their portfolio? And trying to look at it in a holistic approach as well, because odds favor, you have things other than bonds in your portfolio, like stocks, maybe you have commodities, maybe you have alternative investments as well. So you have to be mindful of that. You may not want too much of a concentration in one area or the other. But I think when you're looking at, let's call them non-dollar bonds at this stage of the game, most of the developed world, we're seeing or have seen a reversal, right? I mean, you don't hear negative rates as we had been a couple of years ago, right? I mean, negative rates now, even in the developed world, those G7 kind of countries has really been eliminated, been removed. I mean, we even have something like we've talked about the Fed. So the Fed version in Europe, the European Central Bank, finally talking about raising their interest rates. I can't remember the last time we had that kind of a discussion. So even with that, though, Yield levels here in the U.S. still tend to be on the higher end versus a lot of our counterparts, say, in France, in the U.K., certainly in Germany. You know, areas such as Italy, the rates will be higher there than they are in the U.S., but there's a reason. I mean, there's a reason why interest rates are higher, getting back to what I was saying before on that front. When I look at offshore, non-dollar bond investing, so there are normally two risks that you focus on in the bond market. You look at interest rate risk, which we've done a lot of talking about, or credit risk. You know, we mentioned investment grade or high yield type of credit, right? In other words, downgrades, defaults, that would be something in the credit risk bucket. When you're adding, unless it's going to be dollar-based, if you're adding what we call local currency, offshore non-dollar bonds to your portfolio, then you've added currency risk as well. So that's a question I think that, that needs to be answered by the individual investor themselves. Are they willing to assume that other leg of the three-legged stool when they want to go offshore? Some do, some don't. At this stage of the game, some would perhaps make an argument that I've been hearing lately that perhaps emerging market debt is offering opportunities at this stage of the game. I don't necessarily argue with that. But once again, the question is, do you want to add that to the mix? Because you're talking about currency, and then you're also talking about credit risk because they're emerging markets, right? It's not Germany. It's not the UK. It's not France. It's not even Italy. It's in the emerging market space. And we just saw with what happened, unfortunately, with Ukraine and the Russia war, 
Russia was in a variety of different emerging market debt packages, funds, ETFs, or something along those lines. So these are all, I think, important considerations when you're looking at the non-dollar bond market. These are all great insights, Kevin. We, we just thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks again, Brandon. So if you give us just all the listeners just one final thought on everything going on right now before we finish up on the bond market and the fixed income, what would it be? I would say use that strategic approach, Ryan, that you know we were talking about earlier, where you have a, a core bond type of positioning, and then you complement that accordingly. How do you want to invest in terms of your income needs? What is your time horizon? What are you looking at? Which is why the barbell approach is an interesting strategy. It's something that is time-tested. Some people talk about laddered portfolios, where you basically straddle different maturities as a ladder, the rungs of a ladder. Well, a barbell is basically a ladder, but without the rungs. You have the top step and the, and the lower step. Thank you for that. And two, important to mention, I know we covered a lot of different areas of fixed income and interest rate policy and all kinds of good stuff today. I just would redirect listeners again to Kevin's podcast, Basis Points. Goes into a little bit more detail on some of these topics, really short, digestible episodes, really awesome content. We, again, we appreciate all of your insight here today. And thank you. And thanks to the team over at Wisdom Tree for for participating and providing some education. So thanks again. And uh, hopefully we'll have you guys on again here soon and we'll do some updates and, and see where we stand in this whole landscape, maybe in uh, sometime later this year. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Thanks, much guys. appreciated. Appreciate you.